This week on A Lively Experiment, the events in Minnesota coincide with discussion here in Rhode Island about policing. And a pause on one vaccine. How will that play with the public's confidence in the program? A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... For more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen-White, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program in Rhode Island PBS. Joining us on the panel, Angel Tavares, former mayor of Providence, political contributor Scott McKay, and former Rhode Island Attorney General Arlene Violet. Hello, everyone. I'm Jim Humble. We appreciate you joining us this week with policing on the minds of many Providence Mayor Jorge Alorza announced this week that the city is considering assembling a crisis response team for mental health emergency. It's something that was talked about as part of a study that the city commissioned in the wake of last summer's protests, both here and across the country. Angel, let me begin with you. There's a lot of distance to get from here to there, but this is a discussion that many believe is long overdue. Oh, thanks, Jim. Um, You know, Policing is very, very difficult work, and there's no doubt um, that the police officers have a challenging job. Um, In Providence, we have someone from Family Service of Rhode Island who rides with a lot of police officers um, to begin with, and certainly we can look to see where we can improve uh, the response to the community. The thing that I would focus on more than anything, though, is accountability. I think that, you know, we see what's going on in Minnesota right now with the trial of Derek Chauvin. And I've read in the LA Times that that officer had 17 complaints against them. You might not hear about it during this trial because of rules of evidence, but 17 complaints. Somewhere along the line, you've got to hold officers accountable. And I think that that's very important. So I hope that we see more of that, not just um, here in Rhode Island, but across the country um, to make sure that there is accountability Uh, because I think that will improve the police departments across the country. Yeah, and Arlene, of course, we've I know you dealt with this in your role as attorney general. We've also seen the Boston Police Department recently had uh, the president of the union who had been uh, for years, they just kind of overlooked some crimes and now it's kind of caught up with him. But it's a balancing act, isn't it? You want to, I mean, I think most law enforcement people get into it for the right reasons, but you do have the the stereotypical bad apples then that kind of force these questions to be asked. Bad apples have to go. And frankly, uh, the... uh code where you don't, in fact, turn in bad cops has got to go. Uh, Recently now, I believe in uh, Buffalo, they have a mandatory reporting responsibility. If a cop sees something that another police officer is doing, you've got to intervene to stop it. You know, we're looking at, as you mentioned in Minnesota, uh, we have George Floyd, who probably would have gotten a fine only if he was found guilty of the underlying reason why they uh, uh, accosted him. Uh, The 20-year-old young lad, uh, that was a misdemeanor uh, there. Uh, We have the New Bedford study, which focuses on 10 police officers who are probably responsible for up to half of of this study, which pointed out that there was this enormous disproportionate stop and frisk of people of color. Uh, it's got to stop. We have a problem and we've got to address it. And there's got to be accountability to stop this. It's more than training. It's accountability. And we've got to focus on that. Scotty. 
Well, a couple of things. First of all, I don't think the average person is aware of how much of the police time these days, and sometimes firefighters too, first responders, are spent actually dealing with mental health problems. I will say that I think Providence has a better police department than a lot of other urban areas. So I think the leadership is pretty good, and I will have to credit Mayor Tavares for some of this. Uh, with uh, Hugh Clements being there, Steve Perry, they seem to have good leadership. It's a very diverse department. If you look at the police in Providence, it's a far more diverse workforce than, say, the teachers are. And I think that, you know, we also have to take a look at the policemen's or police officers' bill of rights, because there's some problems with that. And I think both uh, the mayor and the former attorney general would probably agree with me. Absolutely agree with you. Uh, great leadership also, I, I agree with you, uh, in Providence. It's very difficult, this mental health issue. I love that they're moving in that direction, but it's complicated. Just this week, another town uh, in Rhode Island, uh, the police in a way had to be there. It was a mental health issue, but the man was going to uh, kill people and his family and then ha kill himself. So it it it's such a sometimes a confluence of many factors, part law enforcement, part mental health. It's very difficult to implement in reality. Yeah, Angel, what about that? Uh, the, the police would say, I already heard the union president, well, we wouldn't want any you know, reduction in, in law enforcement, shifting those resources over. I know in Providence, they're down some, some uh, men and women now. But what about that? Because I'm sure this, this is not a new issue. Mental health, as Scott said, has been such a consuming part of a lot of police work. What, what happened when you were there? I'm sure these conversations went on. Well, look, I think that one of the things is that um, our police officers are trained professionals and they recognize some of these situations, then they have to use discretion. And you hope and you pray that they use discretion the right way. And I know that there's a lot of talk about having, you know, a new, uh, a new focus solely on that. But we also have to understand that um, those situations can be dangerous. They can be, right? They're not necessarily all the time, but they can be. And so it's a question of, of uh, using discretion and making sure that the officers are prepared to do that. And um, I agree with Scott. I think that the province police department, um, it's certainly not perfect. And we've seen that. There's a trial going on right now or, or about to have a new trial. But um, they have made tremendous progress. I'm glad to play a small role in that. Um, but uh, they've made tremendous progress. And I also agree with Scott that I think the uh, law enforcement bill of rights is um, its day has come. There's no reason that police officers cannot be subject to discipline, just like firefighters, teachers, um, other union workers, and have a hearing and be able to grieve it and do all those things. The Bill of Rights uh, is something that I can tell you from my own experience, uh, hampers the ability of police departments, um, of administrators to discipline. And as I said, I'm not talking about going, doing away with due process. Teachers have due process, so do uh, firefighters, other union workers. They can do it that way. So um, I, I would love to see that repealed. I think it's the time has come. One thing I will mention, and this is sad, but I hadn't been downtown in quite a while. And just last week, I had to go in for a dental appointment. And sure enough, I'm driving through Kennedy Plaza, and there used to be a line of food trucks all the way down. And the other day, there was just one booth there in the middle of Kennedy Plaza, it was free Narcan whenever you need it. And I understand that, but 
You know, a lot of people don't understand that the police spend an awful lot of their time dealing with these real societal tragedies. And I hope that we train them. And I think that the domestics that they have to go to, I think a lot of people think that it's like a TV show, NCIS, or you're chasing robbers all day. No, you're not. You're dealing with some really tough societal issues that, frankly, are much more widespread these days than when some of us old folks grew up. Arlene, just before we move on, let me ask you, I noticed that the officer who shot the young man mistook her taser for the gun, and there's some question about that. Was it intentional? Uh, The the authorities out there charged her with second-degree manslaughter. Now, a lot of people say, why isn't it murder? I was surprised that the charge came that quickly because really to try to get a conviction on a law enforcement officer has been an uphill battle. So I understand the critics. Can you put your attorney general hat on for me? It seemed very fast and to get a manslaughter charge this quickly seemed to be significant to me. I looked up Minnesota law and in a way that certainly is an appropriate charge for her. Uh, there, that has been the charge when there's been a so-called accidental shooting. Uh, I'm not necessarily convinced that it was accidental and that her saying, oh, taser, 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 she could have been referring to someone else to use the taser. But albeit as it may, I think it was a very appropriate charge, minimally at least. You know, here is someone uh, that is a trainer of, of police officers. She's right hand dominant. That gun, heavy gun was on her right. The taser is on the left. Uh, it's very uh, strange to me that she made that mix up. Uh, and again, I have to keep asking myself that, you know, if I had a white grandson in the car, would the same thing have happened to him as opposed to a black kid? Uh, I, that's that inherent problem that people have uh, in law enforcement. And it's, it's got to stop. These tragedies have got to stop. We've got to have accountability. And I'm glad she was charged. All right. Uh, Sabina Matos was sworn in this week as the new lieutenant governor. Of course, we haven't had any of you on since Dan McKee took over as governor. So, Scotty, let me begin with you with deep institutional knowledge uh, of this state. Uh, Let's talk about your impressions of how McKee has done so far and how Sabina Matos changes, if at all, the the, uh, the complexion, uh, literally and figuratively, of next year's governor's race. Well, I think so far, McKee is doing about as well as he could. I think if he's successful, he will be the kind of governor that a Link Almond or a Joe Garrahy was, frankly, uh, a real Rhode Islander who has good instincts, and we'll see how he carries them out. I do think that what Matos is going to have to do is to go around the state more and get out more. People know her in Providence, but people do not know her well around Rhode Island, and I think she needs to get out there in the Westerlies and the Exeters and the Woonsockets. The other thing here, of course, is the political calculus. You know, Dan McKee, we're only only 2,400 votes away in a primary from a Governor Regenberg, and I think Dan McKee knows. He knew. I talked to him about this more than a year ago. He knew the only way he was going to get to be governor. He thought this was if the Gina Raimondo went to Washington. And sure enough, Governor Raimondo went to Washington. And so what he has to do is get ready for a primary. We already see Nellie Gorbea. We see Seth Magaziner, perhaps Mayor Alorza, other people lining up for this job. So he's got to do a two-track kind of 
uh, governing where he takes on the state, deals with the legislature, gets shots into people's arms, which is the most important thing right now, I would argue, uh, find a way to spend all of this infrastructure money in an effective manner that we hope comes. And also he's got to protect his political flank. He's got to get out there and get ready. He just hired a consultant, I believe, and raise money and do all those things. And sure enough, Mayor Tavares knows how hard it is to be governing and also to be running at the same time. It's one of the most difficult kind of tightrope walks that you can make in politics. So that's what I think we'll be watching. Angel, what's your scorecard on McKee and now uh, his new lieutenant governor? Well, let me, let me just say a couple of things. I mean, first of all, with respect to the lieutenant governor, um, who I've had a chance to work with in the past, she's a worker. And she's a worker and a public servant in the, in the best sense of the word. So she's very focused on the community. I think that Rhode Islanders are going to like her. Um, I think she's going to work very hard. Um, and I think you're going to see that. Um, I think you've seen it already in terms of this process. Um, and I think you'll see that going forward. But with respect to Governor McKee, um, I think he's under a very good position going forward. Uh, first of all, uh, don't underestimate Dan McKee. Uh, he's a winner, right? Uh, he's, I think he's lost one race and, in Cumberland and came right back and uh, beat that opponent. Uh, won a three-way race for lieutenant governor, won a very competitive two-way race for lieutenant governor. Um, and now he's going to be an incumbent governor running uh, potentially against three or four candidates, which I think benefits him. Uh, right. I think that the more uh, folks there uh, benefit him. He's raised just raised almost three hundred thousand dollars in the first quarter. Um, and he's going to raise a lot more than that going forward. Um, and I think that uh, Scott, again, is right. I mean, he's going to be judged by um, how quickly we get vaccinated, rightly or wrongly, by how quickly we get vaccinated. And I can tell you, having gotten my first vaccination, um, that I was so impressed with the way things were running. I did it at uh, Saknas at Crossroads in Cranston. Um, and he's going to be judged by opening up our economy. And fortunate for him, he's got a lot of money that's coming in from Washington. I mean, the Rhode Island Foundation has set up a, uh, a group to look to see how to spend over a billion dollars that's coming in from Washington. So he's got a real opportunity. And I think that, um, that Lieutenant Governor Matos will help him. I don't know how much because they don't run on the same ticket, but I certainly think it will be a help to him. Is that something, just before we go to Arlene, uh, Angel, do you think uh, McKee has said all along it, should, it has to be a constitutional amendment, obviously, but to have them run as a ticket as they do in, in Massachusetts, do you think we should change that? I do. I do. I think that that's better. Um, I think that the relationship between the uh, Governor McKee when he was Lieutenant Governor and Governor Raimondo, I mean, I think that's not, it's not a secret, right, um, in terms of that. And so I think that you can see, you should have uh, the Lieutenant Governor working together I think back when um, uh, Governor Kachiri was out of the state during the snowstorm, Lieutenant Governor Roberts didn't even know that. I, I think they should run together. And I, I think that's going to happen. I don't know when, um, but I think that that ultimately will happen. Arlene? Since I think Bob Healy uh, was correct on the position of Lieutenant Governor, I, I don't subscribe necessarily to that last point. But I just think that Dan McKee made an inspired choice it was very smart for him to pick a very smart woman. I'm delighted that uh, she, in fact, is lieutenant governor. And politically, he's smart to talk about bracketing and running with her. Because I think, you know, it, it really puts a crimp. Uh, what's Nellie Gorbea going to say? She, if they're running as a team, she's challenging 
a woman of color in a sense, you know. Uh, Seth Magazine and his family being into social justice issues so much. Uh, I, I just think it was really smart. I think McKee has the upper hand here, and she helps him uh, enormously uh, in the upcoming race. So he, he's definitely the guy to beat. Uh, Arlene, let me stay with you on vaccines. I think Angel hit it on the head, rightly or wrongly, how the governor handles the vaccines. And, and having gotten my first shot, everybody is unfailingly cheerful. So kudos to all the military people and the volunteers and the people who have been hired. Um, a little bit of a blip this week with the Johnson & Johnson and it's only six out of six million, but I wonder if they know something maybe that we don't know. There's a pattern or whatever. I just wonder whether you think this is going to be just that, a blip, or whether this is going to reinforce some people's concerns about getting the vaccine and that that might have a suppressing effect. On Thursday, CBS this morning noted that there is the same type of ratio uh, with the other two vaccines. And I only minored in psychology in college, but uh, I think these blips reinforce the position that people have. Uh, if in fact uh, you have the vaccine and you want it, it reinforces how careful the government is being about it. So it makes you more apt to get it. Similarly though, uh, with people who are resisting getting the vaccine, I think this so-called blip will have a chilling effect. And I, I really think uh, the government has to really start a campaign to overcome that reinforcement for people who were hesitant up to this point, because I think it is going to have a chilling effect, regrettably. Angel? Well, you know, <clears throat> I agree with, um, with Arlene. Well, it's interesting. I saw a poll yesterday that said that um, that it actually seemed, people seem to be more confident because of the pause. Um, now, that just, you know, uh, that was obviously a very quick poll. I think it was uh, tweeted out by someone at the White House because I looked to see the source of it. Um, but I do think, uh, it, I think it's going to reinforce how people feel. We need uh, people to get vaccinated in order to be able to get to herd immunity. And that's what concerns me about the people who are hesitant. Um, I understand, you know, people uh, feel strongly about their own liberty and decisions that they make and everything else. The question is, what about when your decision impacts other people, right? And um, we can't get to herd immunity without a certain number of people uh, getting vaccinated. So um, I think we got to do everything we can to encourage people to get vaccinated. I also um, think it's important to keep things in perspective. I've seen somewhere, I think that you are more likely to get struck by lightning um, than to have that reaction, right? And, and I think you have to tell people that. You have to let people know, you know, um, and any medication, you could have an allergic reaction, right? That you hear that anytime you go to a doctor, is, do you have any allergies? So you've got to be careful about that. But um, um, I'm hopeful that what will happen is that people will see that we're taking this very seriously and that they will go out and get vaccinated, if not for themselves, but for the people that they love. Yeah, and Scotty, some people wondered with just that few people, six out of six million or whatever, should they have paused? Clearly, the CDC saw something that maybe we did not. Yes, my uh, infectious disease doctor wife says, hopefully, that this small blip will not slow down people's reaction. I'll tell you what bothers me a bit, though. In looking at some national data, there are actually in some of these red states in the Deep South, there are vaccines piling up because there's so much anti-vaccination attitudes out there. I think that's a problem. We don't need to have any more divisions in our society. We already have way too many. 
And to have a red and blue state vaccination divide is not something that Americans really want. It helps me married. To, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Arlene. No, this is like Scott McKay day because I agree with everything that he said. That's right on the program, including <laughs> that last point. But, you know, I, the White House was really smart coming out and saying the reason why we did this pause is that with blood clots, you have to treat them differently if the genesis was that vaccine. So uh, the usual protocol is to use a blood thinner, and we don't want you to do that. So we want to make sure that if uh, there's a presenting problem at a doctor's office, that they don't use the usual protocol. So I think that was a very smart way of explaining why they did the pause. You know, we have tape of all of you with Scott and uh, and uh, Arlene. We'll have to see how much you agree. What the uh, <laughs> we'll have to do a study on that. All right, I do have a couple of things to get to, but let's. I don't want to short you guys on outrages. Scott, let's begin with you. Do you have an outrage or a kudo this week? I have a kudo, and it's an interesting one. Uh, there's this young reporter I've known for many, many years, and he recently did a very good story on the mess of the Block Island Marina. And my kudo today is actually to our moderator, uh, Jim Hummel, who's been doing some fine work lately. And it looks like he's also captured the attention of the Attorney General, Peter Nerona, looking into it. And I think these kinds of stories, and there's a lot of them around lately, more than people think. Everybody says the press is diminished, but there's some good work going on here locally. And I just want to tell people this is why local journalism matters. Scotty, thank you for the kind words. We'll put a little extra in your check this week. Uh, (laughs) We're going to talk about that momentarily. That's one of the things I wanted to get to. But Arlene, let me go to you first. Kudo or outrage this week? Well, first of all, kudos to you. I couldn't agree again with Scott Moore. Uh, You know, originally, believe it or not, I was going to pick John Boehner because uh, he took took the stick uh, to Republicans (laughs) And that was refreshing to see, but I'm not going to pick him because I learned that he voted for Mr. Trump twice. So I'm moving him off. And instead, I'm going to talk about my heartbreak. Edelman. Oh, not Julian being a Edelman. Patriot, so I'm heartbroken. <laughs> Were you invited to his retirement party, Arlene? I hear you're on the I, I would Believe me, I'd go in a heartbeat. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you would. That's a good one. Angel, what do you have this week? Outrage or kudo? Well, um, you know, from my perspective, I, I wanted to talk about the Red Sox and the the, the great uh, job that they're doing. It's been amazing. But Arlene touched on sports, so I'm going to go back to politics for a second. I read this morning I, a tweet by Maggie Haberman of the New York Times that Governor Christie, former Governor Christie, uh, New Jersey governor, is advising Republicans to call Joe Biden uh, a liar. Uh, I've actually seen it on on this week, uh, a couple of times where he appears on ABC uh, saying that. And I'm, I'm just, uh, it's outrageous to me because um, it's like uh, Republicans forgot how to spell lie um, during four years of Trump. They, they, they didn't dare say the word liar. And you have somebody um, who now is trying to do a good job. And if he makes a misstatement, you should, you should call him out on it. You should absolutely call him out on it. Um, but he's got, uh, I don't know, about 30 or 40,000 misstatements to go before he uh, catches up to our former president. And so I think it's outrageous. Yeah. Misstatement is a uh, is a kind way of saying lie, isn't it, Angel? Um, Arlene, let's go back. Scott, thank you for the kind words. But this uh, the Block Island case that I did about Champlain's Marina and more recently the way the CRMC Coastal Resources Management Council, for those of you who don't know, it's a quasi public agency. They have huge sway over a lot of what goes on along our 400 plus 
miles of coastline, any development, and there have been some questionable ways that they've arrived at decisions. Arlene, as you look at this, CRMC you've known over the years, the players have changed. Is it time now for some structural change and maybe bring them more into a cabinet level uh, position, or do you think it's just a matter of tweaking what's there? Well, as you know, in the days when Grover Fugit was there and there were other uh, members on that commission, uh, in effect, we didn't have these problems. So I'm not so sure that it's a structural issue as much as it's an appointee issue. Uh, For some reason, uh, they've gone rogue here on CRMC, as you pointed out, Jim, kudos to you, kudos to Attorney General Narona getting involved in this. So before I call like for any kind of structural change, I just think we have to look at who's getting appointed uh, and why they're doing these rogue activities. Scott, what do you think about that? CRMC has gotten a lot of, it's been up and down over the years. It sure has. And one of the things that I really became aware of lately. We've always known about this, but access to the coastline. I think it was Alex Nunes over at the Public's Radio, another old friend of mine, uh, pointing out that we have these phony fire districts in Rhode Island on South County, and their main job seems to be to keep the hoi polloi uh, away from the water and not have the rich people in their big mansions have to see the rest of us out there, you know, on the waterfront. And I think that there's a whole need, a whole look, I mean, that we need to do at the whole way we treat our coastline. It seems that every few years this comes up, the general will remember back in the Dupree administration, the Black Rock and the developments, there's always going to be tension between developers and the public's who don't have that kind of money, but still want to enjoy our wonderful beaches. Rhode Island is one of the most beautiful places in the Northeast, and I don't think we should probably shut all that off. There's got to be some kind of a balance there, and it might be time to take a look from the General Assembly at just what the CRMC's charge is. Angel, it was encouraging to me that Peter Narona, the, the Attorney General, I'm not sure this would have happened with his predecessor, He's really keeping an eye on things, and and I know that it's bubbled up that people have contacted his office and said, "Hey, we have concerns about this," and that they're he's actually listening and getting involved, and that's something that we haven't been used to the last eight years before him. Well, I, I got to tell you, when I heard Scott give his kudos, um, I, I agreed uh, giving you kudos, but I just wanted to point out that. Uh, as a former mayor, um, I certainly never wanted to get the attention of the attorney general or Peter um, Narona. So, uh, so I'm glad that we're talking about it in a different context. Um, I think that um, Justice Brandeis said it, sunshine is the best disinfectant, right? And what you're doing is you're shining a light on it because I think a lot of Rhode Islanders don't realize necessarily how powerful some of these boards are and the impact that they have on our lives right and um so i think that getting that uh getting the information shining a light on it is important i think the general Nerona looking at it is important um and i think it's time to revisit uh, what's going on um here and um and figure out the best way to um to figure out the best way to address it i don't have an answer necessarily how to address it but i think that what's clear Jim, from what you've reported, is that um, there are some real issues, and um, we need to fix them and um, and find the best way to go forward because we have a great state, um, and we need to protect um, our coastline, and people should be uh, well represented in, in doing that. 
All right, folks, that is all the time we have for the main show, but stick with us. If you want a little more of this panel, you want to see Arlene and Scott agree a little bit more, we're going to do our <laughs> bonus online segment, Lively Extra. Go right now to ripbs.org slash lively. For now, Scott and Arlene and Angel, thank you so much. Folks, join us this panel. We'll keep it going. For the rest of you, come back here next week as the Lively Experiment continues. has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS.